Non-stop talk radio. What the devil is all this noise? Streaming 24 hours a day. TalkZone.com Welcome back. Thank you very much for staying with us. We are talking right now. We are actually reading a passage out of the book Escape from Saddam. The Incredible True Story of One Man's Journey to Freedom by Louis Al-Samari. So he is in this uh, passage I'm reading right now. He's a new uh, recruit in the army, and this is how they t- treat their new recruits in the army. About 20 meters from the barbed wire was a muddy pit, perhaps four meters. So this is happening to him, this next thing, because he was supposed to go under all this razor-sharp um Barbed wire in 60 seconds, which, by the way, is pretty much impossible unless you just get yourself mangled and cut up all over the You know, the place. this razor wire, razor wire. Horrible. Just horrible. Horrible. Just rips everything. The guy before him uh, uh, went really fast and made it, I think, in the allotted time, but he was scar- I mean, cut up all over the place. Mm. So about 20 meters from the barbed wire was a muddy pit, perhaps four meters in diameter and a couple of meters deep. The two Arabs pushed me toward it while my comrades looked on. Once we were by its side, one of them struck a blow to the pit of my stomach with the butt of his, uh, I guess it's his knife, his Kalashnikov. Sounds like a knife. Okay. (laughs) Winded. I collapsed to the ground once once more, gasping to catch my breath. I felt a heavy boot kick into my rib cage as the two proceeded to beat me with their hands and feet until my body was bruised and bloodied. At no point, however, did they touch my face. I found out why later. I was expected to look presentable when I was on display and bruises or cuts on the face were not acceptable. But any other body part that could be covered with the uniform was fair game. The beating felt as though it lasted an hour. It probably lasted only a minute. And when the airs finished making an example of me, I was pushed roughly over the side of the pit. I fell heavily into a pool of cool mud at the bottom and uh, at the bottom and felt it seeping through the coarse material of my uniform. Stand up, one of the Arabs shouted at me. Painfully, I pushed myself up off the ground. Now, he shouted, climb out of there and the next time I tell you to do something in 60 seconds, you do it in 60 seconds. Understood? That was my first encounter with the pit but it would not be my last. Whenever one of us failed to achieve a task that had been set, maybe we had not climbed over a wall quickly as quickly as we had been instructed to or not let ourselves remain suspended at the top of an obstacle course for long enough, we were beaten and thrown over its sides. The beatings varied in intensity according to either the gravity of our misdemeanor or to the whim of the Arif in charge. But they were always brutal enough to persuade us to pay very close attention to what we were told to do and to carry it out to the letter. We soon learned to make every attempt to land on our feet when we were thrown over the side of the pit. If our uniforms became too muddy, we were likely to be forcibly hosed down and left to complete our exercises in sopping wet clothes. This soaked material shaft unpleasantly against our torn skin, and if the hosing down happened to take place in the heat of the day, the wet 
the wet uniform turned boiling hot and scorched our skin before the water evaporated and the cloth dried. Nobody was spared these beatings, even those who performed well. The Arif wanted us to know exactly what sort of brutality we could expect if we stepped out of line. Okay. I just want to make one example with regards to this. First of all, this is horrible behavior. But secondly, um, you know, in our country, you read many stories about the military. And what they do is they try to get people to perform well from a point of pride. And this pride, it's like, uh, do it from your heart. And here, the, everything they do is about getting you to do it out of fear. The right. whole country is, ba- everything is based on fear. You know, there, there's two giant worlds apart in uh, getting people to cooperate with you. One is by fear and force, and one is by wisdom, understanding, caring, helpfulness, and, and mutual cooperation. By the way, it was the—it wasn't a knife; it was the butt of a gun that uh, he was being hit with. Yes. Uh, also, they are required as soldiers to do torture on one another, to learn how to torture. You, you know, it makes sense if you're going to be—if you're going to be a torturer. If you're tortured, you know what it's like, and you know the whole psychology going on. And the person being tortured, so you know that makes sense. But you know how ridiculous and how gross. There must be a better way to do that. Uh, I want to go back for a moment, uh, briefly, to the whole idea of uh, we are supposed to be going into a golden age. <laughs> this doesn't work. Something has to shift. The world has to be transformed in some meaningful way. Because when you're in a golden age, these, this behavior doesn't happen. And somewhere along the line, somebody's got to go out and take the stands. I mean, I know there's a lot of complaints about the idea that we're in a war over there, but how else do we start to transform this yes. if we don't do that? Right. You know, that war, there were mass uh, weapons of mass destruction. If you want to read a few books, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Howard or Stephen Hughes? Stephen Hughes. Um, Tehran's Tehran's Wars on Terror. Terror. There's one book. There's another one that's just fresh out. I don't remember what it is. This one sort of goes in that direction, too. And, uh, you know, the media didn't portray any of this right. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up one show at a time, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. You know, here's another really good little peek into uh, the Saddam, Saddam's world over there. His son, Uday, had a heck of a reputation. And I want to read this one uh, little part here about who he was that you might get an idea of what it was like over there. Uday's reputation was fearsome. He was known throughout Baghdad for his most, for almost psychopathic contempt for ordinary Iraqis, and stories about his terrible deeds, deeds abounded. As a 15-year-old, he had been taken, uh, he had taken part in a massacre of cabinet members who opposed his father. It was rumored that he sometimes killed the girls who were brought to the presidential palace to entertain him. 
On one occasion, he shot a civilian in the street with no provocation and in full view of many witnesses. Nobody intervened or complained. Doing so would have given Saddam's henchmen carte blanche to execute them on the spot. But word of the shooting soon spread and Saddam was forced to take action. It was announced that a punishment would be imposed upon Uday. He was to be exiled from his beloved Iraq. Oh my God, my heart hurts for him. For a period of two months. Nobody was fooled, however. Uh, this was in the days when Hussam's family uh, could travel freely in the West and Uday's punishment was little more than a vacation to the casinos of Geneva. Back in Iraq, Uday took charge of the Iraq soccer team and under his supervision, players were routinely beaten and tortured if they played poorly. His diversions became increasingly extreme. He kept lions as pets. Well. Zoological experts later said that it seemed probable these lions were fed human meat and sometimes killed and ate human beings. Saddam's son was breeding man-eaters for his own Amusement. Enjoyment. Yep. That's uh, Roman, Roman yep. was it gladiators? Romans yep. used to do that. Yep. None of it's pretty. That's when a, a society is really breaking down. That, Boy, that, isn't that it? That would tolerate that. It's really true. Okay. I think we're climbing into about... <laughs> <laughs> the end of this awful stuff. I'll tell you, these next couple of pages are pretty brutal. And this is uh, this is what it was like living inside of a dictatorship. And let's remember, you know, we don't live anywhere near inside anything like this. In fact, I want to... Where's my little sheet on... Uh, pr there it is, prisons. Here's a comparison that we'll read when we're done here. So this is uh, Abu... Grabe. Is that how it say, says? I'm not sure. Uh, the prison, the notorious prison over in Iraq and how they treat their people. First of all, AIDS, we, they were told, was a Western disease. By the way, for those of you who don't know this, AIDS originally started in Africa. That was where it was first. And there was um, this fellow... This gay fellow. Well, they suspect it was uh, in this huge cave kind of thing, and the monkeys got it, and then the people got it w mingling with the monkeys, and then this guy you're talking about. This guy who was a gay um, flight attendant who uh, traveled all over the world and found many, many, many men, I mean thousands, all around the world, and he spread it to all of them, and that was the beginning of it. I've, I've read this before. Anyway, so that that's the facts, but here's what they were told. So so these gay people have many sexual encounters every day. Well, I mean, this particular this, guy this did. He went to the, the, ba the, gay, the baths where right. they would go. Everywhere. So, But in Iraq, what they're told is this. AIDS, we were told, was a Western disease, an epidemic confined to the relative promiscuity of the non-Arab world. See, and that just isn't the truth. But you see, they're told propaganda all the time. So the notoriety of Abu Ghraib was enough to chill the fervor of uh, even the most revolutionary citizens. It was said that thousands of men and women were crammed into the tiny cells and that abuse, torture, and execution were, executions were daily occurrences. 
The regime tested chemical and biological weapons on their inmates, and some prisoners were giving were given nothing but scraps of shredded plastic to eat. Chunks of flesh were torn from the bodies of some prisoners and then force-fed to others. Gruesome tortures involving power tools and hungry dogs were routine, and thousands of people who entered the doors of that fearsome place were never heard of again. So did you know any of this? You know, th- this is amazing stuff, and, you know, I don't hear about it. You know, this gives you a little bit of perspective about the, you know, inmates in the United States. I was just reading today about some of the inmates, you know, they have lots of extra time, so they file lawsuits, hordes of them. And here are some of the things they're complaining about. Just as a comparison, toilet seats too cold, prison didn't offer salad bars, cruel and unusual punishment due to the limit of, on number of Kool-Aid refills allowed, a defective haircut resulted in lost sleep, headaches, and chest pains, didn't receive scheduled parole hearing while out on escape during the time of hearing, or the Muslim prisoners demand that the infidels, the guards, use gloves to hand them their Quran. So here's more on this prison. It was known that mass graves existed around the country, and it was known in general, this is in Iraq, it was known in general terms that they were uh, where they were situated, but of course no one dared to hunt out the final resting places of the poor men and women who had become victims of the enthusiastic guards of Abu Garb uh, for fear of becoming one of their number. The four AIDS-stricken women were dealt with in a fashion brutal even by the standards of prison. Stripped of their clothes, they were placed alive and screaming into an incinerator so that they uh, they and their vile disease could be utterly destroyed. In this way, Saddam delivered our country from the horrific infections of the West and from the inequities of the evil Zionist state. Other atrocities took place more openly. As living conditions became increasingly tolerable, intolerable, many women were forced into prostitution. Of course, they were taken out and uh, their heads were cut off in the middle of the street where everybody hmm. could watch. This is amazing. I remember a parade down the main thoroughfares of Baghdad. This is this guy's testimony, his eyewitness testimony of all the stuff That's going right. on. That's right. Uh, I remember a parade down one of the thoroughfares of Baghdad when I was a child. The road was closed to traffic and thousands of people joined the march, which was intended to celebrate the glorious Saddam. As the day wore on, however, a small group of insurgents became vocal in their criticisms of the regime and started to shout out anti-Saddam slogans. There weren't very many, certainly only a small portion of the crowd, but the Republican Guard was quick to act. A helicopter immediately flew overhead. White paint was poured over the entire crowd, insurgents and non-insurgents alike. Heavily armed soldiers were then dispatched with orders to shoot anybody stained with white paint. The whole operation took less than an hour. A few lucky souls with paint only on their clothes managed to escape the crowd and change. But people with paint in their hair and on their bodies, uh, where it was more difficult to remove, fared less well. 
The military scoured the area and shot dead anybody suspected of being part of the uprising. Wow. That's a dictatorship. You hear so it's ugly. You hear so often um, the Muslim terrorists and that whole consciousness over there, they don't, you know, they just kill their people, our people, civilians, uh, women, babies, old people. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. Whole, and we're doing precision bombing trying to just take them out, you know, and they're hiding behind their mosques or their women or whatever. It's, it's just two different worlds. Again, this is the paradox. For some reason, these people are in these situations. Next hour, we're going to talk about Lewis in particular, his lessons that landed him there. At the same time, uh, countries who are not in these conditions have a responsibility to raise the quality of life everywhere on the planet. It's our responsibility. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. We'll be right back. <laughs> 